Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and again, joining me is Colin. Say what up, Colin. What up, Colin? And this week, we are covering um, a brief range of topics. See how much of it we get to. But one of the first things that we're going to talk about is um, a new zero-knowledge proof-based mixer for ethereum then we're going to talk about the phonon network and uh grid plus and how they're using the safe cards um or are they called um what are they called in the status network a key card i think or something key cards like yes yeah. uh but basically they work together on the actual they used very similar uh card architectures i think they use the same manufacturer uh, either way, they're compatible. So Grid Plus and Status's cards have a layer two payment solution that has a really interesting architecture and design. And if we have time, we're going to briefly cover some of the projects that the Ethereum Foundation is funding. If not, we'll save that for another episode. So Colin, how's it going? How's, uh, how's oh, life Do we want to go over Justine's thing too? About yes. Yeah. And we're also covering an article um, by a researcher at the Berkeley Blockchain uh, Institute. Um, she made a yeah. She made a particularly interesting point that we might want to bring up. In fact, let's just let's start with that. Start with that since yeah. it's a good segue right there. Right. Um, you know, uh, so you sent me this article. I thought it was pretty interesting, but but what I what I, I kind of skimmed it mostly because most of this stuff in here. It's called a DeFi dream. What is it? it what it is, and I'm sorry, DeFi. What it is and isn't, and uh, it's a multi-part series. And, and just looking at part one, she had um, you, you made it. You actually were like, look, I, I think you know most of this stuff. I think most of the people in our space kind of know it. This is just kind of like something that if you've been in here a while, you know about DeFi and what what it what it is and what what it what it what a lot of people think it should be and blah, blah, blah. Right. But it actually was wind up manifesting. And she kind of does a commentary on that. Right. But so in the that first, commentary. Uh, the first yeah. thing that really caught my attention in the article is that she basically comes out and says that it is unlikely that DeFi in its current instantiation will un help unbanked individuals in the developing world uh, start using financial products. And... It's, I mean, it's something that kind of does need to be restated, but it's actually, the whole thing is an explanation of why that is. And most of those are actually really obvious and things that are very familiar to our users. Right. Um, but she did touch upon a point that I feel is really um, understated in mm -hmm. the current DeFi landscape. And um, that's point number six in her article that we'll link in the show notes. And it's new risks compounding across protocols. 
And this is a really interesting aspect in the fact that all of the DeFi applications on Ethereum can be linked to one another. Yep. And yep, yep, yep. they can create contagion. Mm-hmm. So the dependence of most DeFi products on DAI, Maker's mm-hmm. Stablecoin, basically creates a amplification of the inherent risks within the Maker system onto other platforms. Right. So if the Maker smart contract is affected, they have over $400 million locked up in that smart contract currently, um, it would essentially cascade and destroy every other DeFi product as well. And, and I think what's more important is her... So that's a, that's just saying like if the, the actual contract is infected or there's a contagion or whatever, that's fine. However, it doesn't even have to be that. In other words, the, 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 the MakerDAO contract could be perfect. Okay, yes. it could be absolutely nothing wrong with it. It could be right. operating as intended and has been operating as intended for years. But due to compounding chaotic circumstances, something can just go wrong. And I love the way that she she really just starts her second paragraph in that point with many of these projects utilize concepts that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis. But more importantly, they utilize them in new and untested ways. And I think that's accurate. I think what we're seeing is, is, is I mean, whether or not it's, it's the same concept or not, it doesn't matter. I think what's interesting is that you're, when you're building a dependency around something that has no gatekeeper and it's all protocol, um, if there are enough random elements that can, that can make something uncertain or weird or, or just like fly out of, fly out of whack, um, it can impact a lot of people. And that has a human impact. Now, I mean, the argument can be made that an economic impact would be irrelevant because it should all just balance out, um, you know, especially considering that we have a fixed limited supply and a steady production rate, uh, a predictable production rate that's not determined by a particular country, for instance. So they can't just like raise interest rates or decide to print a bunch of money, um, you know, to solve the issue. Uh, so the problem really, you know, if like Maker goes out, something else will pick it up. You know what I mean? Um, it, it basically is, 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 but there's a human cost to that. And I think that that's, uh, that's why it might not be as desirable as we think it is because a crisis of that magnitude can't be fixed. Um, yeah. And to think that we're avoiding those issues, avoiding these compounding interactive, uh, you know, it's like interactions between various markets and various marketplaces and various systems um, to say that they're not going to have some sort of like, um, uh, impact on each other is is naive, and right. we don't know what the the actual magnitude of those impacts will eventually be. So MakerDAO could be doing nothing wrong, and yet it still would impact Maker in some fashion. You know what I mean? There's uh, there's another facet to this as well because I think the Maker die, um, it's obvious, right? Like the yeah. other systems are literally using die as the base currency that they've built their entire systems around whether or not they like create some alternative construction to make it more efficient on how they pay interest like compound with c die um that's tangential but the other part of this is the fact that we are creating financial innovation uh financial products that um create different types of relationships between the underlying assets and the marketplaces within them, right? So if you could actually 
use uh, something like Compound in order to um, earn interest so that your Ethereum can or your DAI can be lent out, right? Um, how does this interact with a, another uh, derivatives company like DYDX that allows you to take uh, leverage synthetic positions against coins so you could have like 3x exposure in one direction or another right so then the complexity of having all of these things in a very interchangeable way is the fact that the uh, contagion of even smaller projects can actually dramatically impact larger projects as well mm -hmm. right so if the wrong incentives are aligned so that people are incentivized essentially like let's give an example that i know currently isn't true but it's easy to explain imagine if you could create a make or die cdp you get die in return and then you put that die in compound finance and you would actually make more for a short amount of time because it's essentially arbitrage in interest than you actually would pay to um, borrow the die from the maker system you're essentially printing free money right so these are just this is just one example of how these types of systems since they're like directly um, i mean the argument there see that's the thing is like the arguments are are valid but the impact is human does that make sense so like yeah okay yes. you're printing money so basically people are going to get scammed on the blockchain. It's like, yeah, it's an, mm. another type of essential scam because it doesn't have any value. It's not actually printing money. It's not actually printing money. Like it's right, not. Right, right, right. It's no, not. It's, it's just not printing you have... value. I, I should see. So here's the thing. This it's is just that you have an economic incentive. Yeah. You have an economic incentive for a runaway effect because yep. of uh, separate complex systems interacting in unforeseeable ways. Right. And that, right. And that impacts people in, in, in a human sense, meaning like, the 2008 financial crisis wasn't illegal. Like the deregulation that ha allowed it um, was was there. They were, as far as I know, mostly legitimate. It wasn't like you know what is it? Um, um, uh, uh, shit. Uh, Enron or Enron or something. And, and so like these are also legal in the system. Like they're not violating the rules of the protocol. But the impact is human, and the difference between like an impact in, 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 uh, in like you know the two thousand eight financial crisis, you know, Bear Stearns style is, uh, is basically uh, you know, um, is that they can't get a bailout. Although I honestly think that's a good thing. Um, uh, I just, uh, I just know that the impact's going to be human and not corporate, and it's not going to be. Um, it's not going to be in the favor of the common folk, the plebs, you know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, and right. it's all going to be I mean, revolving around again, these compounds. That's assuming, that's assuming there was like some kind of uh, moral hazard, as uh, the term was, that essentially someone was incentivized to uh, take advantage of the system in such a way to like personally profit off of other people. And um, that risk certainly exists. And yeah, if someone and if someone's precedent. able to figure out how a, a combination of all of these products um, can lead to disproportionate personal gains, I'm almost certain that someone will take it. Yep. Um, and, and that's kind of the foundation of capitalism. 
right right and and actually i'm not i'm not entirely against this it's just that like the fluidity of the protocol and being able to transition your money from one system to another essentially Uh in the same block if you write it within a single smart contract transaction Uh then the uh, complexity of actually analyzing the effects of these systems are no longer in isolation so yes maker dies um contracts are formally verified and Mm -hmm. they were the first on ethereum to do so but are they formally verified against how they would behave given the additional incentives of other platforms right like yes you can not abuse their contract but in combination with another system then you can somehow find a way to uh, yeah. eventually take advantage of it in unforeseeable ways so this yep. kind of like explosion in complexity of multiple different types of financial instruments that are literally tied together by code um, they can just have a interesting kind of runaway effect that is previously unforeseen um, but anyways it's it's an idea that uh, definitely merited um to be brought up and it's going to be explored more certainly um i think it it's new technology and once we actually see how people do use it um people will notice that essentially there are these types of arbitrage opportunities uh between the different networks and whether these are sustainable is a very open question still so um i'm gonna transition briefly to the next topic, which is a um, privacy-enabling um, layer two... Technically, it's not a layer two solution. It is a mixer that uses zero-knowledge proofs. And um, Colin, how do you feel about privacy on Ethereum? It sucks. Currently, I mean, like, what do yeah, you mean? That's, 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 yeah, like, <laughs> so, like, there's, there's, there's things you can do, um, but you know, for the most part, it's, it's not built to be Monero. It's not meant built to be any Mimblewimble like Grinner, Grinner Beam or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's... it's not meant built to be completely private. Your privacy to you is your responsibility to figure out how you can handle that. Um, so if you execute a transaction, like people are going to know, um, uh, you can pretty much just assume there's no, there's no actual privacy and somebody will probably be able to find some way to tie an address to you. Um, if you're planning on profiting in any sort of fiat sense off this or any material sense whatsoever. So yeah, I don't think privacy exists. Oh, in terms of the fiat sense, I, uh, assume that privacy is broken at that point. Um, But or material for... in any way, like if you even just exchanging of drugs, like you know, I mean, Bitcoin isn't safe with regard to that either. Like you can, like they they will find you. They will. It's not. It's not secure. <laughs> it's um, so. What do you think about the idea of having a mixer on Ethereum that uses zero knowledge proofs? Uh, well, how are they using them? I mean, so, it doesn't matter, does it? Like, so here's the thing. Um, what? Are, why? So, what are they exchanging? What? Are, I haven't looked into this. So, what is this? Like, this is like, how do you feel is not enough? Like, what are they doing, and why are they doing it this way? Essentially, they have a um, 
smart contract that you deposit ether into and oh. then you essentially can wait um until enough people have participated into the mixer themselves and oh. withdraw and it's limited to one ether deposits one ether withdrawals and they have relayers that pay for the gas transactions um you have to it's actually each transaction currently costs one million gas so it's not something that's necessarily optimized um, and ready for production use but the idea is that they built a um, front-end ios application that allows this to actually be usable by a greater number of people um, and this just seems like something that is eventually going to be optimized to a point in which it's going to be usable and it's going to work so right. to explain uh again how, base, did you kind of get it or yeah but the, it? where's the relayer like what, what what is the relayer how's the security model of the relayer so uh in order to withdraw to a different um address you have to prove that you know a secret that um you can then create a zero knowledge proof for which you then uh, uh post on chain but the relayer is actually the one posting it on chain because if you send money or ether to another account that you control then you break traceability so right, the but relayer, then what about the relayer like uh, somebody the relayer is there the to pay gas so that right, you actually that. can withdraw the money after it's deposited my question is yes. what's preventing say an, uh, uh, a state actor from throwing up a, a hundred thousand relayers um currently they haven't decentralized the relayer portion of it they do intend to right. but you also have to think that the relayers don't need to know the content of the transaction um, as long as they trust that they'll be paid once it's successfully posted on chain mm. but they so know that, that they know that you posted a transaction that's it but then how does it get so what about correlation to determine whether or not this person you know, statistical analysis determined that this person is what you're actually drawn this much right and well it's like limited that. to one ether so the amount is standardized they hope to fix that but they didn't propose a solution so it's if not- everyone's posting the same amount of money and withdrawing the same amount of ether sorry not money um then Technically, that portion should be the same. Except uh, every single time that this person from this locality or this address or this this whatever, uh, I see what you're saying. Maybe yep. there are ways they can still do it. It just makes it more difficult. Like they'll have to narrow it down by basically address information. If you execute this through VPN or a random VPN, that might be I mean, safer. That's um, that's how mixers work. Essentially, yeah. it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah and yeah, I yeah. think a zero knowledge. Um, based mixer system is much better than like the best mixer that you could find on bitcoin um mainly because the the attacks on like breaking mixers on bitcoin sometimes makes it less worthwhile than um than actually doing it Right. Well, what so about the traditional like- attack for breaking mixers are essentially participating in the mixing process yourself so that you taint coins. And then once you're tainting coins, then you can essentially uh, tell what other 
addresses participated in the mixing process because you know which ones aren't yours um yeah that's a that's a gross simplification but that's essentially how it works essentially if you want to break a mixer you participate in it but if it's zero knowledge simply by the definition of what zero knowledge means is by participating you don't get any knowledge in the system the relayer doesn't get any information about the system right have you ever heard of mobius um uh, it's a it's actually so there's a unfortunately also a company called mobius but there's a tumbling system actually too which might be good to be used in, in combination with this. It's by um, Rebecca Mercer. She's a cryptographer. I think she's at Aarhus University. Um, is that right? Is that how you pronounce that? Ar- I don't know. R-A-R-H-A-U-S. Let me look her up. Hold on. I think that's the right place, too. I don't know if you can get in that wrong. Rebecca Mercer. Mobius. Uh, yeah, yep, 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 Arhas. Um, and she has uh, a paper. Let me get that paper. Here we go. That actually has tumbling services uh, that you can actually write a, a efficient smart contract to, to handle tumbling. And basically what it does is it implements um, the, uh, the um, what's it called? Um, I actually found the GitHub here. So what it does is... It offers a trustless anonymous tumbling using linkable ring signatures. Yeah, it's Monero, basically. It's the same right. technology behind Monero. I'm kind of wondering, like, uh, would this be usable in the like on the end side of the mixer to add the ability to do um, withdrawals and deposits that are of various sizes? Hmm. Not sure. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I just, what do I think about privacy on Ethereum? Even with this, I just don't trust it. It's not right. built for privacy. Um, no, it's not. It's just also, not. have you heard of the Aztec protocol? No, I haven't. Okay, we'll link these in the show notes um, as well. It was a company that got some foundation, uh, some funding from uh, Consensus to the tune of over like $10 million. And I find their work really interesting. But essentially what they did is took various portions of um, Zcash and Monero and implemented them in smart contracts, but they have a very similar construction as shielded addresses, but it's essentially shielded addresses that can trade within their smart contract. So it's going to be shielded addresses as you understand. So this is the construction basically works that entering into uh, the smart contract isn't anonymous obviously right but once you do you get something that is like a shielded address that protects the amounts being transferred from the address that you're uh known to control to potentially addresses that can't be proven that you control either and it hides the amount and the addresses and shielded addresses are uh basically from zcash but they have an implementation that's a little more similar to monero as well the question of how is uh complicated and it's probably requires like an hour worth of time to discuss on its own Um, yeah we got um yeah so i i kind of get what they're doing here a little bit yeah okay so um it's basically an npc tactic um that's used a lot in things like uh 
I think Interledger actually used it a bit. Um, uh, I know that I, I feel like, so when I'm watching these range proof stuff, I think like there were a lot of talks at, at um, what's it called? Um, so like Starksware has their own kind of system for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think, sorry. Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh, sounded like it did. Um, okay. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cool stuff that could come out of this. Uh, I don't know how well it works, but since it's using EIP, what, is that the gas station EIP? What is that? Uh, EIP one one zero eight is the. Um, Which project are you referring to currently? I'm still talking about Aztec. Um, okay. Is the uh, uh, alt uh, 128 pre-compiled gas costs? I think this is one that's dependent for the the gas station EIP. Maybe I don't know. It's hard to remember all these. I, I you know you read them once and you go okay that's cool and then you forget about them. Uh, but this is uh, you know it seems like it's dependent on a upgrade to the protocol. Aztec seems interesting. I'd like to look into them more. Yeah. Um, um, they actually have something live on the test net and I've been meaning to actually play around and uh, test it. Um, one of the things that probably needs to be discussed more by these projects is the fact that um, the people who develop these things probably know how to break their anonymity since it's still built on Ethereum, they should have a very good, clear attack model that they do not protect against. And I wish they made that a little bit more explicit, right? Um, because you could trade anonymously within the Aztec protocol with other people participating in the Aztec protocol. But when you enter and when you leave it, then you break anonymity. So... <laughs> Wait, so, so uh so this so exiting Aztec the oh so Aztec has an exit problem. I gotcha. Well yeah. it's not necessarily an exit problem. I wouldn't exactly say I'm missing it, uh, Bob. But it's a uh, you know, I mean like cause the idea is that you can't see how you made your money, you just see that you made your money. Right. Which is um... a different type of privacy. This is the thing that I think people often forget is that security is not one thing. It's not like there's like ultimate security. That's called digging a giant hole in the ground, layering it with three feet of concrete and, and barring yourself in there with uh, a bunch of Twinkies and some jugs of water. Like, you know, like that's that's security. You know, there's a lot of different ways to be secure and there's a lot of different ways to be insecure. And it's basically a pick your poison. What is your trade-off? What is your net gain? What is your purpose? You You know, other than passing butter, what is your purpose? So, like, I feel like this is a specific kind of privacy that is extremely interesting. The reason it sparks my interest is because they're using the right words. They're using the right stuff. Um, yeah. It does have a trusted setup, which is interesting to me. I, I haven't gone through it much. I'm just skimming. Like, I'm a speed reader. I skim for the right words that I'm looking for, and I go, okay, this has, this has some interesting technologies that I think in combination will work really well together. Um, and they're, you know, from range proofs to their commitment scheme, they're actually pulling a homomorphic encryption technique with their, well, those are inherently the same, right. the, one part of it. But um, 
uh, you know, they're, they're, but the thing that uh, they're using a trusted setup. So I'm a little concerned about that. Yeah. That, it, that, that trusted does allow you to... setup just depends on what kind of uh, zero knowledge proofs that they're using. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't have to have a trusted setup, but there are advantages to it. Right. Um, and first off, the proof is smaller, like way smaller. Um, but it's, um, it's interesting. It's interesting. I need to look into these guys more. Aztec protocol. Yeah. So we'll have, uh, the three projects we briefly mentioned in the show notes as well, and we'll be following them. Um, but the mixer I found to be neat yeah. in the sense that it like it does one thing and that's all it does. Well, yeah, uh, that's, that's, and it that's... thinks, of, and it thinks really closely about like the actual entrance and exiting problem as well i think Um, you said something very important there uh it does one thing and it does it well yeah you know something that we keep coming up back to on on the other show i I do on the network hashing it out um is the idea of primitives um cryptographic primitives cryptoeconomic primitives you know even ux primitives or something that like we really want to have a standardized set of tools and, and and just know that those are what they are and we know what the trade-offs are with it because they're tried and tr- tested, you know? Right. You know, I feel like, um, you know, and, and the word primitive might be overused or too strong, um, you know, because a lot of these are fat protocols, right? And they can be implemented in a hundred different ways. But the idea is doing one thing and doing it well means that you can link those things together. And, and, and let, me, let, me, let me go this to a bigger, a bigger design philosophy. The one thing that I think Ethereum got super right is the idea, and they got a lot right. They got a lot of stuff that I'm now realizing might need some work. Um, but um, the uh, the one thing that I think the, uh, Ethereum got more right than anything else is the concept of modularity. Um, and, and I don't mean like modularity in a, um, this is my module, I can import this library, although that would be great if there's a package management system for Ethereum. I really want that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, and a versioning. Uh, way to do that too, but the idea of of doing a basic thing and kind of building a system that restricts you to doing those basic things, and then also providing a mechanism for piping and linking those things together. In other words, what I'm saying is, it gives the it, it, it's a kernel of the OS which enables a Linux-like architecture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and that's what Linux did well. Like that's what Unix did well. That's why Linux stole it. Is that instead of having like, you know, a massive copy function baked into your program, which does this and that, there's there's a simple copy command. And from the command line, you could just take that copy command and then you could pipe that into another thing. There's cat and all these other little tiny commands and just these simple interfaces, these standardized POSIX interfaces for connecting this data between each other. In a, in a very predictable way. And that's what Ethereum is essentially set up for, for the ecosystem that it has. And that's why it's growing as fast as it has. And that's why it's, it's successful is because it's set up a very foundational, very bare bone set of things that can connect to each other. Now, I think they're too bare bone for a large scale economic system. And I think what Ethereum has done by providing such a, a, a central bare bone system is allowed people to test to figure out what the larger, the more, the more, um, feature-rich system would look like. In other words, there are things that don't exist in a standard Linux install that are almost essential for most for most most uh, 
most live operating systems. Uh, some of, a lot of those are security oriented, right? right. Um, and it took ages to figure out what those should look like and how they should work and how they should upgrade them. I mean, yeah. decades. Um, and I think what Ethereum did very well is is basically built um, what is it called? Um, that most is it Slackware? Uh, the most very basic. Oh, why is my brain not pulling it up? MVP. Like, <laughs> yeah, the most very bare bones system for kind of describing that. And I do see what I see happening is a Alinus Torvalds character coming out of nowhere and sort of building something that's even better than what Ethereum is, but kind of has that same property and the principles and the tested and tried and true ways that they've done stuff. Now, do I think there's some other things that I don't think they, they, they might want to improve upon? Like I, I'm, I'm not so sure about compiling the code and putting it on the blockchain itself. Um, I don't think compiling is actually a really good call. And, and we actually get into that in a conversation that'll be released on our episode of hashing out this week. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, we want to be able to see the source code. Uh, but I think providing a very thin, like, like bare bones way of doing things is, is essential. Um, I think what's great about like Hopper, what I think what's great about like um, uh, Aztec is that they do one thing and they do it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Ethereum I, is essentially the platform for experimentation because right. in the first five minutes, we mentioned three different ways to do privacy on Ethereum. And right? you can link them all together. That's the thing that I'm trying to point out here. Yeah. Is there's nothing stopping you from using all three together in your system yeah except gas cost (laughs) but you can pick and choose essentially the best uh best portion of each of them and it's interesting how each of them is made uh one's made by a team of researchers one's made by a startup and another one is just an open source project that someone made as a side project following up like from having read it it's you basically followed up from a hackathon which one is that Hopper was the one that just um, followed up on work done at a hackathon. Cool. So I mean, like, it's interesting. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's just like, but I think that the thing I really want to want to drill into like is that nobody wants a monolith, you know. And in right now, we can't deal with the risk involved with it. And so I think it's really great to see projects like this. I think these are essential. The essential projects. These are the projects that that are that are really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the projects that I think we need more of. Is is these very primitive. I don't want to call them primitive because they're not actual primitives, but very, 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 very linearly focused niche projects, which do one thing and do it so damn well that nobody else will ever use any other thing. Um, they would just rather link their stuff into that. Uh, so yeah, no, I think that's, I think this is cool. And yeah, gas cost is definitely an issue, um, but maybe not in the future right now. Yeah, like I'll I said, this it. is, this is still super experimental. I think it's, Oh yeah. It's just, it's just funny to me how, how much expectation we put on something that is so young and right. so early in the stage. And, and I honestly think there's other innovations that are coming outside of the Ethereum ecosystem that either might get integrated or might compete strongly with Ethereum itself. Mm-hmm. This is, this is the testing ground. This is where people, this is where we're going to learn what we need to know to make the next 20 years happen. Um, true. Yeah. So, and yeah. the results of the research coming out in this development community are essentially going to decide what's going to work in the future and what's not. Um, right. It's... So speaking of monoliths, what about the payment system that we currently have in the real world with fiat? You know, like it is a huge, huge monolithic contract oriented system 
where you know discover visa mastercard uh atm um you know uh all these payment networks are are, are really de dependent on their their interchange protocols which are mostly ftp based um well i don't, I don't know that for certain actually um i know that international ones at least are swift um but you know, like these are all really monolithic systems and being able to integrate into those seamlessly is going to be important because the infrastructure is already there, um, which kind of leads us to what Grid Plus is doing. Yeah, so um, Grid Plus has uh, recently released a, um, I would say, an update or a reimagined vision of yeah. what Layer 2 would be. It's the best way to put it. And essentially the um, smart cards... Um, they call them safe cards, uh, status calls their cards, key cards, um, but they're already available for sale and I have a pair now. Uh, and essentially these are hardware wallets on cards that have, uh, Java programmable chips on them. So you can plug them into your computer and you could essentially use, um, your home machine to generate a public private key pair. Uh, on these cards. And in addition to that, the cards themselves have a um, irre irreproducible like aspect to them as well. Right? Yeah, in the manufacturing process of creating these smart chips, they're basically fingerprinted with a unique randomness that they can't really replicate at any point. That's just the manufacturing process of them. That's why they're that's why they're secure. Somebody can't just like rip it off and make it. Right. Um, unless, of course, there is a uh, bad actor who happens to have a card printing chip and they infect your supply chain. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure how that works. I know, I know that from what I read about these chips is that they're very difficult to forge. I don't are. know if it's impossible, but it's very difficult. Um, they're very difficult to forge because they've been around, I mean... Everyone's got them in their pockets right now, all over the world. Um, they've been tested for side channel attacks. It's very difficult to remove the keys off of them, mm -hmm. but the unclonable aspect of them that is embedded in their hardware is particularly uh, difficult to forge, and it essentially needs the misbehavior of a card manufacturer to do. Yeah. Um, essentially, your card has to be compromised from the beginning. They have to like not follow their actual manufacturing processes in order to uh, to attack it. But these are the types of attacks that we just all have to live with. We use hardware wallets every day. It's we use um, chip-based security and everything. But that's like a good problem to have. <laughs> if that's uh, if that's the crux of your security model, that someone literally has to physically copy uh, the chip off of your card in order to be able to uh, do anything with your funds, that's a pretty good uh, starting security model. So what Grid Plus has done is they've actually used the combination of the unique card fingerprint with the actual addresses that you could load onto them and created a payment channel using this. So you could pay from one card to the other without the transaction ever being registered on the blockchain. Right. Yeah, yep. and it's essentially because the cards themselves have um, a tiny bit of memory on them themselves, mm -hmm. and 
you can transform your uh, ether you can send it up to a smart contract that smart contract essentially um, locks it into the phonon network right which is the combination of the irreproducible uh, or the unextractable unique identifier of the card and uh, the ethereum address and then you can transact from one card directly to another and it actually the card will check that the funds are deposited on the ethereum smart contract but it doesn't actually change the state instead the state is actually changed on the physical card itself Mm -hmm. So you're essentially able to transact with between these cards, and the only thing that you have to do is check that the funds are actually deposited on the mainnet smart contract themselves. So Grid Plus has said that they'll, you'll be able to do this with both Ethereum and Bitcoin, um, although the Bitcoin implementation is a bit different. Um, I think it's more similar to a multi-sig Obviously, it's not a smart contract-based system. Um, but the actual design and implementation of this is new. It's uh, been announced very recently, and I'm excited to give it a try. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not really... So like this is not my wheelhouse. I'm just going to lay that out there. First off, it's hardware. I don't do anything hardware personally. Um, I just don't... I just avoid it. Um, Eventually, and- everything is hardware. <laughs> I mean, I understand, but you know what I'm trying to say there. Right? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm, an, I'm an algo guy. I'm an algorithms guy. I like I like right. software. I like uh, I, you know, I, I like to look at uh, I like I like to think of logic problems. And um, although there, there's unique logic problems of hardware, I'm not I'm not formally trained in that that in an area. It's just not something I understand very well. Um, second off, uh, I do understand that kind of the the the, the architecture model of this um, because we had them on our program December. To talk about a lot of this, um, I think they might have rebranded. They might have actually said the word. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. But about the phonon system, which I think is interesting, and in that they are they're basically layer two, but without without a without a uh, uh, a layer uh, state channel solution. So they they literally package up their transfers into. Uh, little tiny packets they call phonons. And these packets are portable and don't require any sort of um, state channel, trusted setup or anything to, to exchange. Um, and they can literally validate uh, peer-to-peer um, over any any transaction system you want. Uh, you can validate that they are, that they're, that the phonon itself is backed. Um, now, whether or not you need to actually check, you know, resolution on chain or something, I'm not sure. Um, meaning that can I manufacture two phonons which have the same amount and then would attempt to double spend if I spent the both? Like, I don't think so. I don't think it allow you to do that. Um, I think it's kind of like an NFT in that it just says that this amount equals is a representation of the amount that's stored on this contract for this, this period of time. And as long as you're within that period of time uh, and able to resolve within that period of time, and I- I'm guessing, I-, I don't remember well enough, I haven't looked into it that deep, and they're able to like determine that um, it is, in fact, the same you know, uh, storage uh, ID serialization, then you can just w- w- you know, make the exchange at any point by having uh, 
them sign a transaction which says, um, hey, yeah, I'm giving you this, and then they can receive ownership by sending that, sign that signed transaction to the chain, which will then give them the assets back over. Um, and of course, their system doesn't depend on Ethereum. Um, it actually is both Ethereum and Bitcoin. So they've got their own, um, their own mechanisms for exchange, uh, which is its own sort of uh, security issue, possibly. It's just, a, it's just another thing to look at to possibly attack. I don't know if there's the ability to attack it or not. I can't say in either direction. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of what they're doing is hardware-based, and it's, it really depends. Like, I asked Corey, I was like, dude, what do you think about this? Um, just today, I asked him. Um, and he says, it seems interesting. I like their hardware-based network, but it requires people to own them. Um, and I don't know if he means like that will, they will increase the security model by having more people own them, or if people own them, they, they, it alters the security. So if a corporation buys all of them, does it screw the pooch on the people who do own, the five people who do own them? Like what is, what is the security model around that? I don't know. Um, or if he just means that you can't even use it unless you have their stuff. So it's the Mac model, basically. It's the Apple model. It's like, yeah, you come yeah, into our, no, our, it, our it ecosystem. Requires, it requires having the cards. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, having the cards um, is one thing, but you just said that key card works with it as well. So they might not care. They they use the same, well, but you they need their borrowed a lot of the same... Technology as status, and according to their press, they are compatible with status's keycard. Okay, so, but but I think what he means is you have to have their hardware to get money onto it. You have to have their system in order to make shit work with their card. I assume um, um, it's possible because they have a another part to their build that's called the Lattice, um, uh -huh. the Lattice Plus, which I'm also really excited about. Like, um, yeah. But it's uh, we'll talk about that another time, um, because the Lattice Plus is like a um, secure compute element wrapped in tamper-proof mesh, and the screen, the touchscreen on it, actually runs off of the like secure compute um, platform. So it's kind of an interesting design for a hardware wallet. Um, but yeah. the idea is that. Um, from what I understood of the actual architecture of the phonon network itself, it I didn't necessarily see any mention that you have to use the lattice to transact with it. Okay. Um, because the Java cards themselves, as long as you have a card reader, it, it runs a simplified version of Java on it, and you can essentially. Um, so where's the where's the next computation? Part of Sorry? Where's the net, where's the network part of this? The network part of this? You call the phone a network, but like, right, I it's because lattice. you transact from card to other card. So this is the, actually the question that to me is most interesting. So, do both cards have to be connected and online at the same time? How are they connected if they don't have something like the lattice to read them? How are right, you transacting with the key card if you don't have something that can actually? How, how does how does key card know? How does it translate between, you know, status key card, which is probably a very different system than theirs? And yeah, I I don't know. I, I, That's I'm, true. I'm, That's a good point. Like, can so I just I use it. my computer with a card reader, and can I transact on the phone on network, or does it have to be plugged into a lattice? The the strange thing is is that if they handle double spends 
by essentially removing or changing the state on the key card itself that represents the phonon, does that mean that if you send someone money and they don't receive the packets with the sent transaction, then you kind of just lost the money? <laughs> you know I what know. I mean? Because like, yeah, I mean, you could use it as a burn, <laughs> like literally. Essentially, yeah. And here's the other thing is that I recently, so I follow a lot of lawyers on Twitter. Um, a lot of them are doing the analysis of Craig Wright's case because it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Craig Wright literally like, made the claim in certain places that he could totally sign transactions with you know, Satoshi's wallet. And, right. and, and then, and then uh, the courts came back and were like, okay, you made this claim, prove it. And he says, well, I can't anymore. I lost the keys, blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, you know, blah. so they're literally coming back to him. Like, there's this question of like, he made the claim that he could sign it. He actually can't. So, um, <laughs> wow. so, so like the question that I have is like, what if you did lose your card, which happens all the fucking time and your money's registered on this card. Now I understand there's a time lock component to this. And I also know that by the way, uh, Grid Plus has their mechanisms built into this as well for some retrievability mm -hmm. um, for the lattice specifically. Yes, but it's and seems... this is this is integrated with lattice. You, you, I mean, like they're not separate products. Like oh no, the, no, no. The they're definitely this. meant to be the same. But yeah. I'm just curious as like, to how much of it is purely card. running off of uh, the card itself versus how much of it is the combination of the card plus the assumption of the secure compute environment of the lattice one. Yeah, I, I think right. the card is very, very little part of it. Very, it's like, uh, it's interesting and it's useful, and it's necessary, but it's not, it's not like, like the lattice is like the machine I feel like you load up the card with, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and yeah, that uh, makes sense. Um, and, and so like, I, I've, uh, so like, let's say you lose the card. Obviously, there's got to be some sort of time lock or recovery mechanism built into that. I think they went over that in our. That would be in the smart contract. Yeah. So, well, it's the other thing is like, you know, how are they doing it for Bitcoin, et cetera? You know, I mean, like they're. Right. Uh, so they're there's a lot of. Multi-sigs, but. Um, yeah, same thing, yeah, I guess. So, yeah. Have to have, but then they have their own third party system, which delegates that information between those two. Um, and, and so it's like, I, I, I'm trying to say is that. I forgot what I was trying to say at this point. <laughs> Oh, Craig Wright. Yeah. So basically, if you lose the card, what do you like? What like if you lose that card, do you still have the ability to say that you never signed that transaction because somebody else could have maybe done it for you? I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's That's just one of these question. things that that and kind of opens up all these kind of like how does this actually work in reality kind of questions. Right. And right. I think the way we want to assume it works is the same as regular real world stuff, meaning that. Like I slide my card in, I put in my pin and then I transfer money. Uh, but I'm not so sure that that's what can happen here. Right. Um, I'm not convinced. I mean, it might be, but I don't know. And so I just have to it's, that uh, it's one of those things in which like the level of detail of our question, the only way I'm going to be happy answering these is if Touching I tr it. try it out. Yeah. And I look through the code and I play around with it. I break it. And I lose a card, and <laughs> yeah. and then I find out the hard way. Uh, hopefully not. Just kidding. But it's um, it's actually something I do intend to do because I find it a compelling use case. I find it interesting in the way yeah. it works. Um, I also just kind of question how many people have smart card chip readers just lying around. But 
um, if they do, uh, then I think it could be something that's like pretty easy to see people start using, yep. right? Because it's one of those things, it's like, how much do we have to implement QR code scanners at every point of sale place? Like, no, that's dumb. <laughs> you know, like, will we be able to use existing chip readers, um, but probably change the network over which it communicates? I don't know, maybe. Um, but it's it's speculative at this point and the yeah. idea is that um, I think it's a fairly compelling use case and I kind of want to see the limits of it um, yeah but yeah. so basically I like it, it's just so interesting to me like so I like yeah if, if I send you a phone on it literally sends a phone on to you and yeah. then it deletes it from storage on my card, which, by the yeah. way, can't verify. Exactly. And, and then, then it doesn't register any transaction on the blockchain. The I can't thing... verify a delete. Like, I just fucking can't. Like, I can't. If you give right. me a file, I can't verify that that file isn't also on my other like, thing. Like, you can't unless, verify. Unless, of course, the file is unique to that device. Right. And if you could ensure that it has been deleted off of the device that you sent it off of, then maybe. But you understand my curiosity with this, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, what if the recipient didn't get it? What yeah. if, um, like, does what if that it was mean... corrupted in transfer? Oh, of course, then you could just right. do a check. You could just check. You could just check. Can you sign this? Yeah, I could prove I could sign using this. Okay, cool. You've proven that. Cool. Awesome. Great. Okay, we both know that you can sign based off of this data that we both shared at some point. Um, right. Now the question I have to I have to ask is one of non-existence. Like you you can't prove non-existence, and 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 even even in the most like like oh well we built this card so it only has one memory and if you do a check on this and blah 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 and it follows this protocol you could the problem is like you can't guarantee that somebody has an exact card like yours. Um, I don't know. They could reappropriate other cards which are for different manufacturing processes. Which but even then like they'd have to be issued by Grid Plus. Or some system. I don't know. It's so many details that I just can't grok right now. Right? Yeah. And like, it's just like, how does this actually know that it's deleted? But, yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, and how does it only send it if it has been successfully deleted without risking losing funds? And and, like, and the can actual somebody send your card a, a recovery code? So like, let's say I send it to you. And yeah. you and you uh, and you are the recipient. And in return, you send me a uh, receipt which functions as a public key. And so, oh shit, you lost your your card. I can literally go to you and say, hey, uh, or you could literally come to me and say, hey, man, I, I lost that money. Um, you could check the blockchain; it's still in there. Can I get the You know, can I sign this receipt and get it again? Um, which will invalidate the last thing and then redo it again. Like there's. There's, so there's no like, way. There's no way to do that though uh, under this system because that would essentially permit double spends. No, it wouldn't because it's still locked up in the same contract. Only one. But spend that's the thing. The con if you actually have to make an update to the contract every time you change ownership, it's not even a state channel anymore. It's yeah. like just a transaction on mainnet <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah exactly. yeah but it's yeah, not yeah. that's not what they it does which is why it's so cool <laughs> less verification which is even weirder i don't know i don't know i don't know i genuinely right? can't tell what the hell this thing's actually doing 
it's so there's... there's so many variables here. Uh, you know, it's got these things like one-time salts to transfer an asset. So this is where I'm going to getting at here. This is, remember the transition that led us into talking about Grid Plus? Um, I'm afraid of the monolith. And Is the monolith, the like monolith in twenty one, uh, in two thousand one, Space Odyssey. <laughs> that monolith? I'm, no, okay. I'm, I'm afraid of monolithic organizations, monolithic okay. things. You know what I mean? And so, sure. remember what we were talking about is doing one thing and doing it really well. Right. This is a lot of things. Oh, so you're worried? You're worried about like being locked in uh, to a hardware environment? I mean, like. I mean, Aren't we is... already don't we already use hardware wallets? Oh, Aren't no. we already locked into network effects for different networks? How, how many we... things, how many things are involved in this process? Like, there's there's literally probably about twenty potential individualized um, uh, open source projects, which could be independently run. They're independent CP. They're independent MV. They're independent CAT. You know, they're independent LS. That take their own flags, you know. What I mean, they're they're all like little. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> unlikely, <laughs> especially but, for hardware. Like, there's no one like builds a open source heatsink for a Raspberry Pi, you know. But this isn't hardware, is what I'm trying to say. Is like there's hardware parts of it. Like, yeah, this the, yeah, but there's a lot of software in here. And right. Yeah. The, the questions we're having aren't hardware questions; they're process questions involving the software. That's true. But most, a lot of them are going to come down to how the software interacts with the hardware. And yeah, I, I don't think we're going to uh, solve them until we actually like crack it open and use it and break the shit out of it. Yep, that's the only way. To... <laughs> but it's uh, it's kind of the point of the show, right? If we bring up these um, ambitious ideas and basically have an honest discussion about how far along they are and how uh, likely they are to impact the Ethereum ecosystem, then it's kind of how we stay current and how uh, our idea of what is currently possible with the state of technology as it is, is basically updated. Um, And honestly, like this project definitely would prove something that i didn't know was possible yeah yeah stateless channels like basically yeah the phone it's interesting i want to see how they play out but i I don't know uh anyway uh well that's that (laughs) (laughs) great episode (laughs) good talking to you again colin yep see you next week